Amen. Thank you, guys. Such beautiful music. What a wonderful reading by Nathan. Um, just feels really sacred to enter into this Advent season with you. And now we're going to turn our attention to God's Word as we uh, look at Isaiah 59 this morning as our main text. Uh, before we, we get there, if you want to flip, we're also going to look at, uh, a, a, an artist's rendition of Advent that was made just for St. Andrews. I think we have it. If, if we do on the screens, great. But also um, in your bulletin, this is a picture that was made by a, uh, a congregant of St. Andrews, Lorraine Robertson. She's not always able to make it to church because she has a little bit of a difficulty getting around these days. But uh, Linda Perry has been visiting her for some time now, and they spend time together doing art. And really, a lot of her art is done for our homeless ministry. She will paint different uh, pictures or draw different pictures on the lunches that are handed out to the folks that are getting a sack lunch. But we also made a special request this year that she would do a picture for us for each of uh, the Sundays in Advent. And this is our first one. And it, it's important to help us as we enter into the Advent season. You can see here um, that this is a, a picture of uh, people praying, of disciples praying. And they, their, their prayer position is really one of waiting, isn't it? It's a posture of waiting expectantly on the Lord. And Advent is a season of time. Actually, today is the first day of the Christian calendar. So, Happy New Year, all you Christians out there. No, it doesn't, maybe it doesn't feel like New Year's to you today, but really we begin our, our calendar season right now as we prepare for uh, the birth of Jesus. And so, uh, this picture is a picture to help us because Advent is a time where we think about time. We think about what happened in the past, um, the promises of the, the, the past in Scripture. Then we also look ahead uh, to the future, to the future promises that are in Scripture. And, and, and in the middle, in this season we have now, we learn how to wait. Uh, we learn how to wait in time. And not only uh, do we, we wait, but we wait expectantly. We wait expectantly that something's going to happen. And so today, our text is uh, designed, believe it or not, to help us enter into this season of waiting well. Um, I'm going to read the scriptures to you. I will, I'll work uh, through some verses. So we're going to look at the first couple of verses, and we'll stop, and we'll get to the next couple as we go through. Before we do, would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, uh, we pray that you would help us uh, to learn how to wait. Lord, we think of the moments, Lord, when, um, when you went off to be by yourself, um, to meet with the Lord, knowing that there was work to be done, knowing that uh, there was great sacrifices to be made, that there were people that were in need. And yet, you went to be with your Father, to wait on Him and what He might have. And in the same way now, we pray that in this time that we've set aside, that you would come to be with us, to meet with us, uh, to minister to us, 
and to teach us how to wait with expectant hearts for Christmas. In your precious and holy name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay, so Isaiah 59, starting at verse 4, says this. No one calls for justice. No one pleads a case with integrity. They rely on empty arguments. They utter lies. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. Okay, so we just jump, jump, jumping right in there. Uh, and the first thing that I need you to know about Isaiah 59 is that it, it actually is a companion piece with Isaiah 58, which is a scripture that you would maybe know a little bit better if you've been tracking with the Bible for some time. But in Isaiah 58, it talks about fasting. And there is an issue that's being raised to the community of Israel about their fasting. You see, they're doing this religious activity, one of the religious activities we still equate with really high religious uh, morality, right? To not eat, to sacrifice, so that, uh, so that hopefully you're in a right position with God, that you're praying, that you're in a real close connection with God. And yet, as Israel is fasting, as the people, as the religious leaders are fasting, God is not pleased. Um, and so he tells them the reason for why their fasting isn't acceptable. And then he presents what a true fast would look like, and you may remember the words that he uses to, to, to loosen the yoke of oppression. That there's injustice that's going on, and God is looking down at the religious activity, and he's saying, well, the religious activity of fasting isn't, isn't exactly what I'm looking for. I'm looking for what's at the heart of your religious activity. And I'm looking around and I'm seeing the injustices and it doesn't really go with this holy posture that you've brought before me. And so we see actually in chapter 59 in Isaiah that this, this conversation is continuing, but now it's, it's talking about prayer. And so Isaiah 59, uh, in, in this we see a lot of descriptive language where God is telling the people of Israel what prayers that are heard, how they're spoken, and what they're about. And so you see here in verse 4, we said, we, we saw, no one calls for justice. This is a picture of the darkness, right? Unfortunately, when we think about Advent, we have to think about the darkness, that we begin in the darkness. And we're gonna see there's a lot of description that's gonna to come to us about what it's like to be in the darkness. And in verse four, we get the real premise of the reason for why darkness comes upon us. It says, no one calls for justice. This is a hearkening back all the way to the Exodus narrative where the people of God, their hearts cry is for justice and for liberation. In Exodus chapter 3, we hear Yahweh speak to Moses and he says this, 
I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. And so you can see the first time that God answers prayer in the life of the nation of Israel is out of the heart's cry of oppressed people asking for justice. And so now, some time later, Along, many years later, as Israel's been established, they're in the promised land, now they have a new problem. They're no longer the oppressed people. They're now the people that are doing the oppressing. And so they're doing the religious activities, but God needs to address the darkness and say, look, here is why I can't hear this prayer. Now, this posture isn't one of a God who's saying you're sinning and so I'm not going to listen to your prayers. But this is God who's speaking with force and urgency. And he's saying, I need to let you know that there's something off track, that All of this activity, the things that you're producing, the things that you care about, you see here, we see see, as we continue in the verse, they rely on empty arguments, they utter lies, and then it says what? They conceive trouble and they give birth to evil. So the generative, creative nature of this group of people is actually gone in a direction that's creating destruction. And so like anybody who was on a path to destruction, the loving thing to do is to say, hey, this is not the way to go. That this direction, if it was validated, would only validate destructive behaviors that would lead to places even worse. And so the darkness of this passage helps us to think about how we all need to look and understand the darkness. Not something that we prefer to do when we come to church, and yet Advent is this invitation to this healthy activity to say, what are my prayers based in? When I go to pray, do I share the heart of God? Do I share the compassion of God for his people? Is my heart's cry the the cry uh, that would make sense, or am I simply going to God asking God to validate my stuff. And if I'm only doing that, am I surprised when the answer is no? When the answer is, I can't validate that. We continue on, there's some real descriptive language here in verse five says this, they hatch the eggs of vipers and spin a spider's web. Whoever eats their eggs will die, and when one is broken, an adder is hatched. Their cobwebs are useless for clothing. They cannot cover themselves with what they make. Their deeds are evil deeds, and acts of violence are in their hands. Wow, this is really intense language that we see here in Isaiah 59. 
Uh, just to help us to kind of explore the imagery for a second, let me show you another picture. Um, this is a picture of my son and a creation that Mark Falter made for our uh, trunk or treat this year. So my son loves spiders and snakes because his dad hates spiders and snakes. Uh, and I'm sure just because he finds them really fascinating. And Mark Falter made the biggest possible spider, a big scary spider for our trunk or treat. And of course my son was thrilled and needed to take a picture next to it. And a few months back actually, my, uh, my wife heard at the Botanic Gardens that there was gonna be a spider exhibit. Okay, and if you've ever been to the Botanic Gardens, they have beautiful gardens, and then sometimes they have a tent on the side with an exhibit, they have a butterfly exhibit. But this year it was a spider exhibit. And I was told that at the spider exhibit that there may be a few tarantulas that would be in the tent, and we'd go look at them in their nice cages. And even that, I was like, maybe not. And Katie didn't even buy me a ticket because I didn't really want to go in. But when we got there, the wonderful docent person just kind of snuck me in and said, all right, you can just go. And so I didn't have to pay, but the rest of the family had paid. So we go into this tent, and I see the tarantulas in the cages, and I'm like, oh, that's interesting, that's great. But then I kind of turn and I look, and I see there's a free-range spider. Like, there's a spider just in the tent. And I'm like, okay, that's interesting. Uh, there's a couple of spiders just kind of hanging out in, the, in this tent area. And I walk a little bit further, and then all of a sudden, I look up. And in this tent, there are just spiders everywhere. And now I'm in my Freudian nightmare. I'm inside this tent with just spiders going everywhere. And so I make it as quickly as I can to another tent inside because I see they're all at the top. So I'm like, no, those spiders are not coming down on me. And I, I back up so far that I almost back up into a bush where there's a spider behind me. And I'm standing there and now I have all kinds of questions for the person working in the spider tent. Like, what's going on here? Like, do these spiders come down? I assume these spiders come down. And they're like, yeah, they come down. And I'm like, that's a bad idea. There's people here. <laughs> and I said, do these spiders make webs in here? And he's like, yeah, we, yeah, every day we walk through and somebody walks through a spider web. And I'm like, yeah, that's a bad idea. This is, this is a bad idea. Nothing about this is good. Um, and, and so, I, I just call on that imagery as we, we read these verses and we say, we all kind of know what it's like to walk through a spider's web, right? We know that uncomfortable feeling. And here in the scripture, the description is saying that, that this experience of being in the dark, like maybe just think about walking through the forest in the dark and all of a sudden you've walked through a spider's web and you haven't even uh, seen the spider's web, but you can feel it and you know you're just not in the place you want to be, right? This is a description of the place no one wants to be. <laughs> um, and one of the interesting things in this scripture is as we keep reading it, is that at the, few, at the first few verses of it, it's really talking about they, they, they. They, they, they. 
right? Like it's, it's kind of saying like, they are doing this, they are doing that, and, and, and that's a tendency for us too. It's easy when it comes to the they. Like we can look out and say, they're doing this, they're doing that, that's darkness, right? We, we can do that, that's something we could do. But then we see the inverse here, which is the harder part. This is a real work of Advent, the real work of becoming, right? As we move to verse nine here, it says this, so justice is far from us and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like people without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead. We all growl like bears. We moan mournfully like doves. We look for justice, but find none. For deliverance, but it is far away. For our offenses are many in your sight and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us and we acknowledge our iniquities. You see the turn there went from they, they, they to we, we, we. You see, we can say they, 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 but then all of a sudden we gotta go, okay, what are the spider webs that are on the inside? What are the ways in which we are also in darkness still? And so the things that are outside that we see are broken in the world, one of the invitations through prayer is to say, as we wait on the Lord and we face the darkness, that we can go in and look at the cobwebs on the inside. There's a, a famous cartoon that helps to make the point here. You may have seen it and know about it. Actually, a military general in the War of 1812 first came up with this phrase, William Henry Harrison. The phrase is this, we have met the enemy and they are us. Right, and then there's a famous cartoon, it's a little hard to see on uh, the bulletin here, but this is a cartoon by uh, an artist named James Wilson, and he had a cartoon called Pogo. And Pogo's walking through the wilderness and he's complaining about how difficult it is to walk through the wilderness with his friend. And then they turn and they look back and all of a sudden you can see all the pollution and all the junk on the ground. And the response is, we have seen the enemy and the enemy is us. That in some ways, what Advent invites us to do is look at the hard reality that there are still cobwebs on the inside. But the promise is that if we do, if we're willing, like these people were to confess, to honestly confess and acknowledge, yes, there is still darkness that is present in me, that when we do this work of clearing out the cobwebs, what we'll find is that deep down, this is the only true pathway to experience hope. We detach ourselves from the things that are leading us in destructive ways to things that actually won't give us 
what our true heart's desire is so that we can listen to God and cry out to God. And as we clear out the cobwebs, we can move from a place of seeing the darkness outside and the darkness inside as just a place of despair. And as we clear it out, God gives us something new. He replaces the despair with hope. He says, now that I have room, now that I have room, I can come in to experience uh, what it looks like to live in the light, to teach you what light looks like, not just roaming around, banging into things. We saw all this description of what it's like to walk around in the darkness, clamoring. And when we're in the darkness, we just, sometimes we run into things and we don't even know why we're running into it and destruction happens and it frustrates us. And yet, yet God's promise in this Advent is something like what the psalmist writes in Psalm 130, verse 5. It's a declaration. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. So we clear everything out as we wait And then we just declare with the psalmist, my whole being, I'm here this Advent season to wait with my whole being, knowing that all of this darkness will one day become light. And I trust in the promises of Scripture that God can make this true, that God has done this in Jesus and will do it again as he comes again. And so we hope, we wait and we hope. This workshop of becoming is something that we learn how to do every week, right? As hard things come our way, no matter what happens throughout the week, whether it's a war or sickness, or job loss, whatever it is, we come to this place and we say again, your kingdom come, your will be done. If somebody has hurt us, we come here to gain strength, to say, God, would you help us to forgive those who have wronged us, our debtors, because you have forgiven us. You see, that's what hope is. We spend time together reminding each other that Jesus is in charge. And because Jesus is in charge, we have a reason to hope. One final definition of hope uh, is a fun one from Emily Dickinson, which I just love as a delicate picture of what hope is. She writes, hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words, and never stops at all. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul, and sings the tune without the words, and never stops at all. You see, hope is a delicate thing, but it does want to perch right at the center of the center of the center of who you are and who this church is in this Advent season. And if you're willing to listen, if you're really wanting to hear, it will never stop singing. 
it will never stop singing. This is the song. This is the only song. The song of hope that just keeps going no matter what. So may we hear this Sunday and for this Advent season the song of hope. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, help us to clear out the cobwebs and in their place on the perch of our souls would you put your hope, a hope that you have proven is worthy of all of our trust, even as we wait, even as our whole being waits, we put our promise and hope in you again today. In your precious and holy name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.